0: Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I direct the Center for Asian American Christianity. Today, we're in for a treat as I host a conversation with Professor Paul Lim, who is Associate Professor of the History of Christianity at vanderbilt we're going to talk about a lot of things and to kick us off um i understand that paul your son is a baseball player and that he is college bound Mm -hmm. i have a basketball player son who is interested in uh you know playing basketball as long as possible tell me Mm -hmm. where where your son is at in terms of his baseball trajectory and his education
1: yeah so thank you first of all um dr chow for this uh, invitation to join you in this very very important and exciting uh podcast thank you. um yeah um and hello to everyone who's uh tuning in uh, it's a great delight for me to connect uh via this this particular um medium um with uh, the contrib- I mean, supporters of asian american center at princeton seminary um a place that I used to call home uh, between ninety-five That's and ninety-seven. right. So um, you're an alum. Yeah, I am an alum. I uh, not not the best one, but I I own it. And and um, so anyhow, yeah. So um, let's see. So I was really, I, I was okay, smart, but I myself was uh, quite athletic. Didn't always get the opportunity to do it because. My family moved here when I was a junior, I mean, uh, finishing up middle school uh, from South Korea. My parents thought sports ain't going to get you anything, so don't worry about it. So I went out for the baseball team at Yale Mm -hmm. as a walk-on back in 1986, made the JV squad, freshman team, basically. There are so many guys who are trying out, all former high school players who wanted to, who weren't recruited, but they tried out. And that was about a year and a half of very aborted attempt at trying to play collegiate baseball. But I knew that I was good if I had better opportunities. I mm-hmm. wondered what if, what if. And then the Lord allowed us to have one one child. Uh, his mm-hmm. name is Christian. And, um, and he's a, currently a senior in high school. And he is a left-handed pitcher. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had an MLB uh, scouting director in our living room talking to us about what it might cost or what it might take for him, uh, for our son to forego um, college attendance. He's currently, um, he's officially admitted um, to Stanford University as a, as a baseball player for class of 23. And he's really excited about the, mm-hmm. the great, great opportunity and delight that he has to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, he's really uh, very excited to go. He has quite a number of friends, both in this year's draft as well as next year's. Uh, He has a couple of friends who were first uh, to round draft picks out of high school. So this is a world that he's been kind of swimming in. I guess as I look back, you know, um, how we started this journey was he was preternaturally athletic. He played football, basketball, baseball, and he swam. And then he narrowed down to football, uh, football, swimming, and baseball throughout ninth grade. Uh And then after he made a verbal commitment in his beginning of his sophomore year, Uh, I think his coaches encourage him to focus on one sport. So Mm -hmm. then he, because he was playing football, but he was playing like cornerback and so on. And you would have to, you know, complete your play with your shoulder, leading with your shoulder, you know, tackling people down or something like that. So, and he's a pitcher. So I think that wouldn't be uh, the best thing to do for your body and for your athletic prospects. So, Uh, that's where we are and I think you know I'm just really uh excited uh I don't I I I don't think I'm living my life vicariously through him Mm -hmm. I you know there are days when I wish that he didn't play actually because that way he can uh go to a school like Stanford and, and get a great great education but um he seems really poised to go and um do well and I think you know it's like this it seems to me um I think in basketball, we had, well, among the Asian-American communities, uh, you know, Jeremy Lin was really big. And Insanity and all that, I was at the Madison Square Garden watching him score, I don't know, a bunch of points while that Insanity was actually happening. Wow. Um, but that's, like, few and far between. that NFL, you know, we had some, you know, uh, Eugene Chung for the Patriots and a yeah. few others. Yeah. There's a, a kicker for the Falcons, um, Kuhe Chun, who's doing really well, signed hmm. a big Track. so i you know my morning uh devotions are usually reading scriptures praying and then going right to espn.com <laughs> so i'm a sports junkie right so um, so i i've always been really interested in how are asian americans doing in different arenas of sports yeah i think luckily for and thankfully for baseball i mean one of the baseball i mean one of if not the best one of the top you know players right now, yes. I guess the hottest one right now is Aaron Judge, with 61 home runs, just you know, tying or eclipsing you know, Roger Maris's record. Yep. But you know, the other guy is obviously Shohei Otani, and so compared to let's say uh Ichiro Suzuki, who's stoic and you know, people didn't know what he was thinking, but he was a phenomenal player but yep. somewhat unapproachable. Shohei Otani is a goofball, people love him. And I think, you know, there is a sort of a, a, a newer generation or this kind of newer era yeah. where you don't want to be overly idealistic and, you know, like over eschatology. But at yeah. the same time, I do sense somewhat thing, that things are just changing a little bit. So, yeah. I mean, Otani being two-way guy, great pitcher, great hitter. And my son is pitcher. I mean, he's a yeah. left-handed pitcher. But I think he looks at guys like Otani and there's also – um, what is his name? He plays for the Cleveland Guardians, uh, Stephen Kwan, who is a second generation Chinese-American, as I believe, from the Bay Area. Yeah. And there are several other guys that are, you know, really good. Right now in Christian's class are three other Asian-American guys, uh, not, you know, from really? Asia, but born here, raised here, um, who are phenomenal players who may actually skip, you know, college. And um, and so I think, you know, this. these are pretty interesting times. And so I am excited for my son's journey. And I always have to remind myself and my, uh, remind him that, you know, you can only be you. So I just tell him usually, you know, remember these three letters, you be you. Huh. God has made you uniquely you. You cannot be somebody that you, you're you not. And, and the moment you start comparing yourself to other people, especially in the arena of sports, you do it all the time. Other people do it for you, right? Yeah. But then, so you just have to develop a real thick skin in your life journey and just remind, remind yourself that I belong, you know, as the Heidelberg Catechism first question asked, you know, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It is that belonging. So I think especially for a high caliber athletes like your son or my my son, it is really, it's a lonely path. It is incredibly, you know, you're kind of climbing up the stratosphere where there are fewer and fewer people, then you can only really rely on something and someone bigger than yourself, your family, but above all, the Lord who has created you and loves you and sustained you right now.
0: That's a good word. That's a really good word. You know, I want to circle back a little bit to the narrative about um, your son in high school and preparation for, for um, college. I was Hmm. just, so I played tennis and I followed tennis. I was at the U S open. Okay. Whenever there's an Asian American player, I'm kind of always rooting for them. So Brandon yes. Nakashima is an up-and-coming Japanese American player.
1: Oh, okay. Great.
0: Core, and, he, and he he lost against Yannick Sinner and I was disappointed about that. But I happened to be hitting with a former tennis pro- tennis professional from Taiwan who was wow. ranked on the ATP and his son is a basketball phenom at at my son's high school. And so we were just talking about Okay. basketball, high school, college. So here's hmm. the question. Did, did you and your family relocate to a specific school for their baseball program?
1: Quite the opposite, actually. Uh, he goes to a very, very good school. Um, it's a day school, boys' day school. Um, you know, um, I don't know if you know that movie, Dead Poet Society with yeah. Robin Williams. Yeah. But well, the person who wrote the screenplay to that uh, went to this school uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, oh, wow. and it's a school that is really—I mean, there are three. Mottos are uh, gentleman, scholar, athlete, mm-hmm. and so athletically they do well, but they're not known as like an athletic school. They mm-hmm. do well, but it's, it's just you know, and 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 there are different uh, there are different schools in different areas known for different sports. You know, there are definitely baseball schools in the area. Um, my son's school is not one of them. But I think, you know, we really wanted, because we kind of figured that he may be really good, um, we wanted him to go to a school that would offer the counterpunch or, you know, like counter-perspective. Yeah. And that is real great emphasis on academics. And they are, I mean, when I look at the classes he's taking, yeah. you know, I'm a historian of early modern Europe, early modern England, Reformation, post-Reformation. So I know that genre and and period pretty well. And I'm often amazed at how much he's reading. I mean, he was reading you know, Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man. And I was just teaching that in my graduate seminar in the study of religion just last week. And so wow. there's a high school student reading this stuff that I'm teaching to a group of doctoral students. Again, so I know we we I th- we I talked a lot about that option because mm-hmm. I think for some time, our son did want to go to a school where baseball is kind of like King along with football. And, mm-hmm. but um we, just circumstances did not lead us to, and the Lord did not, I mean, like there you know schools interested in that possibility mm. and we were also interested but it just never really ultimately materialized and i think again you know there are things in my life you know the pivot moments where it could have gone this way or that way but it, you know i stayed or you know i chose and you just have to i think one cannot really live with you know deep regrets about a lot of things i think and so we have zero regrets i mean he's really had a terrific uh mm. time at this school called Montgomery Bell Academy, uh, mm. more popularly known with the acronym of MBA, and it's just <laughs> a great time, yeah, yeah. So um, there are schools in Nashville called BA Brentwood Academy yeah. or CPA Christ Presbyterian Academy, and then wow. Montgomery. So you get a BA, and then you get an MBA, and then you become a CPA. So some yeah. people say, you know, in terms of your journey, you know, you get an undergrad degree, master's degree, so that you can become a certified public accountant. But, <laughs> It's just kidding aside. So, but these are the three schools that are really uh, prominent in the area. Um, You know, private schools that are good at uh, athletics and, you know, good at academics. And of the three, I would put my son's school as the top in terms of academic pursuit. And they would, the other two schools would agree that that is the case.
0: Yeah. So, the listener to our podcast may wonder why the heck are Mm. David and Paul talking about. Education, children, and sports. And that's because these are issues that Asian Americans think about. And and so I want to scope out a little bit. This morning, I was just Mm -hmm. reading this special issue of Vulture Magazine. They've got an an entire uh, issue on At Home in Asian America. And Hmm. um, one of the authors, Chu, was talking about the mixed Asian metaphor and looking at the children, especially biracial children yeah, um, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of, um, of, of parents. And I just think that talking about our children and the intergenerational framework is a really mm. important component to thinking about Asian America. And so this right. conversation that we've just had is directly relevant to the broader topic of Asian American life, and mm. American Christianity. And so, along that theme, something that you and I have been emailing about recently is simply mm. um, there are quite a few students, seminary students, uh, folks in their 20s that listen to this podcast. Mm. And uh, you and I are a little bit older in age. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so we have some life experience in navigating institutional spaces, in navigating Mm -hmm. academic life, in reflecting upon our identity as Asian Americans in spaces where we are racialized minorities. And Mm -hmm. so I want to kind of, for this next part of our conversation, think through some of what is some of this wisdom that you gained through life experience in navigating institutional and academic life as a racial minority, as an Asian American, as a Korean American, um, Mm. what kind of advice would you give to your younger self? Maybe that's the question we can open with.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Chow. That's a really um, a crucial question that opens up into multiple directions of, you know, forays of exploration in terms of how we approach this. you know, I would say that um, a couple of things, and life is really about relationships, it seems to me. It's, uh, you know, to put it more theologically, as we talked about, you know, you belonging to, not to yourself ultimately, but to Christ, your Savior, who has loved mm-hmm. you and himself up for you. Mm-hmm. So there is really immediate pre-existing relationality the moment we're born into this world. No one can come out of, come into this world via autogenesis, right? I mean, you cannot just like will yourself into existence. So yeah. that means somebody was there prior to your being. Yeah. So then when I think about my relationships, you know, first of all, it's my family, uh, my parents and siblings. But throughout my life, though, I've the Lord has been really gracious in giving me some real good friends in life. Um, so just last night, just less than, you know, 12 hours ago, I was hanging out with a dear, dear brother, who, is, um, who spoke at Belmont University here in Nashville for their chapel. His name is well-known to our uh, listeners, um, Dr. Sungchan Ra, you oh, know, yes. Prophetic lament and next evangelicalism. I've known Sungchan since we were, since uh, about 2001, when I was just teaching my, uh, starting my teaching journey at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, and he had just planted a church in Cambridge Mass. And we were, um, you know, I think there, there are there types of friendships where you're always trying to kind of one-up, you know, the other and and trying to show off, like, how smart, how much smarter you are or how whatever. He and I never got into that. Yeah. And so, and we were really, um, you know, we were uh, each other's real big fans, mm. you know? And I think, so having, like, a mutual admiration club with your friends, so, <laughs> and if they happen to be of your particular um, I mean in this case he and I are both um you know uh, immigrants from South Korea I think mm-hmm. he came here much earlier than I did and he and I are in fact about the same age mm-hmm. and just a few months apart yeah so that age factor experience factor and above all that sort of a desire to really get excited about each other's journey and be there I think that really matters a lot I think you know when I was younger I used to think that it was more about just, what I can get done and what I can publish, where I can speak, what I can network with. But it was much more instrumental rather than covenantal and relational. Mm. So I would say that, you know, take the time to develop some deep, meaningful friendships um, that would actually have a long-term consequence. You know, Nashville has changed a lot, but there aren't as many Asian Americans. Mm. And, you know, uh, Dr. Rice moved from Chicago to uh, Pasadena, California. Teach at Fuller recently. And he and I were talking about, you know, as we are getting uh, not, I mean, not younger, but, you know, hopefully more mature, but, you know, um, thinking a lot about those uh, significant relationships that really anchor us and sustain us. I would really say that to my younger self. And the other is um, much more self-consciously than I have. And that is to seek out mentors who get you, right. And that's going to be a challenging thing because, um, unless you are uh, in ministry or in uh, theological uh, spaces uh, institutions where there are um, mentors potential or actual who get the narrative uh, the the sort of a you know complicated narrative of asian american identity hybridity i mean i was um so it, you know seek that out i mean I, I think you know for that reason alone even There are certain schools that I would say, yeah, you should really think about that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, you know, yours and, you know, certain other spaces, you know, where, um, you know, that there would be um, the presence of mentors Mm -hmm. who look like you. Who have parents and grandparents and family narratives that are not so dissimilar to yours? Mm-hmm. That uh, that doesn't always mean that they will immediately get you and want to befriend you and 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 kind of journey with you either, to be honest. Yeah. But okay. um, but you know, there is a, perhaps a greater likelihood. And 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 also, I I found that um, I was teaching just the other day on, uh, and I was sharing with uh, this group of doctoral students. Uh, it's all uh, students of color, actually, this year. Uh, in this cohort, and I mentioned to them, the first year PhD students at Vanderbilt, and I said to them, look, um, there are two authors, um, well, three in fact, whose writings have impacted me tremendously. And they're neither Asian American or Asian, nor are they white or Anglo-European. They're all African-Americans. One is W.E.B. Du Bois and his, mm. con- you know, the whole double consciousness and his essay that was published in the Atlantic about, you know, the the the, the whole um, progress of the African American communities mm. and the burden of what it means to be seeing yourself through the gaze of the other, mm. and also Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man when 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 he talks about I'm an invisible man. I told the students, "Look, there's an immediate resonance there. I know that I feel that in my life, in many ways, I don't have I, I don't have much to complain at all, and I don't have anything to complain. I mean, just get grateful. But I do feel invisible uh, by myself or by 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 the others. And the other thing is, Sean Copeland, uh, this uh, woman is uh, you know Catholic theologian who taught at Boston College for a long time." You know, Knowing Jesus Crucified, it's a powerful book that I taught in my class. I mm-hmm. had the privilege of having her uh, join us via Zoom uh, when I was teaching this class on theodicy. And so I was sharing with them, look, you know, it, it, it is odd because my area of research and teaching tends to be on a bunch of dead white figures, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, and I'm Asian, I'm Korean American. And yet all of those but the group of scholars and figures who have really influenced me tremendously happen to be from this other group that I, you know, so uh, we, we we talked about this accommodation. I said, you know, it, it would be accommodation if I just, you know, assume the mantle of being the spokesperson for a community that I'm not actually a part of, mm. but maybe interested. in so but I said, look, I, 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 I have the utmost respect for the kind of, tutelage that they were able to offer me and the kind of perspective and the lens through which I can see myself. So, you know, in many ways, some of my biggest mentors may not have been Asian Americans, actually. Yeah. I think one of my dear, dear brothers who has just retired from Vanderbilt, is an African-American gentleman scholar that I really look to. And he and I were real good friends and remain good friends about a decade older. And I think for, um, for this friend, his presence in my life, and he's super excited. I mean, we we actually lived together for eight years. So what happened in my part of the journey at Vanderbilt? Uh, for eight years, my family and I lived on the Ingram Commons, where all fr- first year students live. Uh-huh. And each every uh, every freshman class has uh, they live in these ten different houses, yeah. and each house has a faculty head. Oh. So this particular gentleman, Doctor Frank Dobson, and I were faculty heads from the very beginning for eight years. So oh, wow. he's watched my our son grow mm-hmm. and Christian, our son knows Dr. D mm-hmm. and I would have him come to our house for dinner to talk about why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. And he would have me do the same. So we just kind of, and and he, he was in fact, the first one who introduced me to Ralph Ellison's uh, The Invisible Man. And I was also sharing with this the group of students, and I, 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 I hope things are a little different at PTS. But I think for when I was going through school, uh, younger, I didn't read Du Bois, I didn't read Ellison, I didn't read, you know, Copeland. Yeah. And so the canon needs to be changing, and in the in the shifting of the canon, um, who are some of the Asian American perspectives? Whose perspectives do we? Uh, legitimately bring in as somebody whose narrative is tremendously helpful like for me like one of the persons that i have used as a textbook is uh, Shushako endo's book the silence yeah you know silence is um, yeah. i'll pull it up this book right here i think or oh, where's that uh, as you look it, for but, it, that
0: yeah. that book was one of the reasons that so uh, dr casey Choi and our co are we are co-teaching our introduction to Asian American theology in the yep. first day of class, we asked students, some of whom are not Asian, why they're taking the class. And one of the students mentioned um Endo's book Silence as a, as a Oh, American. yeah,
1: or the movie version, right? I mean, you know, like you know, um, and that was um that really kind of opened up the eyes of a lot of the students. You know, I think I've taught that book for the last 15 years, and um so many of them said I have the." they would say things like. This is the first time I've read uh, an Asian or Asian American author.
0: Yeah,
1: and some would say this is one of the best books that really shaped my thinking about God. I mean, Savior, self, and society, Mm. and you know, so it's the list goes on. And there, you know, and there is this other book that, um, you know, what is that called? Yeah, it's uh, edited by uh, Rita Nakashima Brock. Oh, off the menu. uh, You uh, mentioned off the the menu. Yes, Yes. and 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 tremendous book and, and I, I i don't know if, if uh rita or, or, or uh uh Puy-Lan would be surprised to hear that i'm a big fan of their work but i uh, again i think there is all of these kind of potentially missed i mean maybe it's it's on me um but it's just that because i do kind of a western you know <laughs> history of Christianity of the early modern period. I think some people assume that I don't have those interests. I, I really do, but I just rarely have the kind of opportunity to really hit at it in terms of expressing, you know, admiration and, but I, you know, I just just love, I mean, first of all, I love that title off the menu. Like, you know, there's some things that are, and I always tell students even uh, these days, you know, coming up with the syllabus is a political act, right? Yes. Some things will be left on the menu, some things will be left <laughs> off the menu. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, because you know, let's say you're you're you are kind of a restaurateur and you're trying to start a new restaurant here in town. You're gonna have to think about okay, do I go southern? I mean, there is a very, very uh big-time uh a chef in the south. Um is a new American kind of you know cuisine guy. His name is Edward Lee, and he's uh a Korean-American guy from Brooklyn, I think. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of, you know, pork belly, you know, samgyeopsal, and kind of yeah. weaves that into because You know, in the South, like a lot of people eat pork belly. I mean, but up yeah. North, I never heard of pork belly, but you come here into the South. I've been here in Nashville for the last 16 years. And, and so I think th- there, there are decisions that one makes, you know, what to include in order to showcase who I am and what kind of future of my restaurant. So I do think that who gets read in, in schools, really tells you a lot about what kind of institution you aspire to be and you already are. Yeah, so, so I think you know um I I have found um, um you know, that book and also just Professor Kquilan's work as a long time kind of long long time standing uh, scholar in constructive theology, Asian feminist theology, and just all around. Such a great person.
0: Absolutely. And I
1: wish Absolutely. I had an opportunity to get to have gotten to know her better. Yeah. I mean, she's now at Emory and I'm at Vanderbilt. and But I just really, I mean, so it is kind of the, the incident, uh, incidental details of our uh, institutional context that sometimes make it possible or our own particular areas of inquiry that may yeah. determine with whom I'll hang more. I mean, yeah. for example, we have right here, uh, Dr. Chun-Liang Xia, who used to be yes. at yes. your... You know, front yard, backyard, right. and he's been here. And and when I was at Princeton Seminary, I mean, just you know, he is such an such an esteemed figure. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't do Hebrew Bible, so I didn't really know him that well. In fact, I don't think I've even like had the courage to speak to him. Yeah. So maybe if I could talk to my younger self again, I would say, you know what, people are people. We all have to put, you know, our pet legs one leg at a time. Yeah. You know, they may be academic superstars, but they're, we're all mortal beings. And so, um, you know, I think one of the best things to do, I, I, I've been telling my students right now this year, if you admire somebody's work? Um, you know, express that gratitude because mm-hmm. scholars are shocked. I mean, I was talking to somebody um, you know, I won't name her, but she's a very well-known scholar. And um, I let her know recently that I really appreciated her work. Yeah. And she said to me, you know, I almost never hear that. And that really blew me away. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so we're all kind of, you know, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of academics, uh, at least myself, I feel like, you know, Rodney Dangerfield, you know, I get no respect around here, yeah, you know, and sure. so... So that kind of and and to really express a genuine kind of human to human, especially in our context of COVID nineteen, you know, just to express our humanity and and uh, kind of desire for uh, you know just expressing how someone's work has you know impacted someone else's life journey. Yeah. And so I, I I was telling these graduate students if you like somebody's work and if you have any questions, don't ask me, ask them, email them, and and you know they may they may or may not get back to you, but a lot of them do because. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I am flattered if somebody takes my work seriously. Recently, maybe about four or five months ago, somebody emailed me asking me about something I wrote 10 years ago from page 242. Like, what wow. did you mean by that? I was like, yeah. whoa, I forgot what I wrote there. So I had to go look it up. And but well, I know. wanna
0: I wanna jump into your work. Yeah, sure, of I, course, I, I also yeah. wanna um just kind of touch on the the mentorship, the friendship, the mentorships, uh, syllabi. Mm. Menus as political yes. acts. I think these are all broadly structures, structures yes. that shape kind of our tastes, our values, our orientation. And I yes. just want to give a shout out, as you mentioned, um, uh, Professor Kwaku uh, Rita Nakashima Brock. Um, these are some of the the leaders within Pan Autumn and ATSI, Yes, theological yes. Summer Institute. Yep. And I just want to say that if it weren't for the Asian Theological Summer Institute, it's yes. a, is a mentoring program, and I yes. highly recommend it for doctoral students of Asian descent, especially when they're at the proposal stage, that, that week-long program was really instrumental because prior to that, I had never been in an intentional Asian or Asian-American kind of formation group. And the Does it still exist? It does. It does.
1: It does. It's. Still- I've written, I've written twice to be part of that as a faculty. They need to listen to this podcast. Yeah. I hope they're listening. I'm yeah. ready to come. I'm Good. ready to come and do whatever I can because, Absolutely. because I don't do Asian American discourses. Again, I think this is, you know, so, okay. Like while we're on the subject, so yeah. Charles Long is an African-American stu- uh, religious studies scholar who is really big in uh in, in African American religious studies now. He taught for a long time at U Chicago, and we were reading his book, Significations. And a couple of couple of the African-American students in the class said, you know what? I you know, this is and they're all first-year doctoral students. They're like, you know, we've read a lot of there's a canon of African-American authors and longest mentioned, but it's not usually read a lot. And hmm. so, and, and we wonder, and I think it is probably because he taught, you know, the sort of a um um, you know, this history of religions kind of uh, 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 trend at UChicago, which is very Germanic and yeah. German yeah. influence. And so yeah. though he's African-American now is being rediscovered and really That's kind of, you know, being read into yeah, yeah, yeah. inscribed into what inscribed for the first time into the African-American canon, you know, of religious studies. And I do think that we need to, among Asian-Americans, we need to also like broaden the scope of like, okay, what exactly, who exactly counts as an Asian-American scholar, right? And so I think my day-to-day experience has been really like pummeling me into realizing that I'm an Asian-American. But then when I applied with things that are Asian-American to hear that, like, ah, no, I mean, I think it's quite frankly, they had limited number of faculty who could do it. And they obviously deemed others to be much better qualified. And I'm glad, I mean, people like, you know i don't want to you know and jo is a great example i think her work is fantastic mm-hmm. you know her work on han has been as a like i i get it intuitively and i do think that in my kind of maturation process i've come to really appreciate deeply the kind of contributions uh that have made Jin Young choi at at colgate rochester crozer divinity school is dear friend who did her phd here at vandy with uh, fernando segovia and she's another mm-hmm. really formidable Formidable scholar that's really doing awesome work. So I'm really excited, and I, I think the the Asian American Theological Guild itself is maturing. Yes, I think there have been kind of passing of the batons, and but also the younger scholars that are coming up. I do I do wonder about you know um, where will they be placed? I mean that's a general kind of industry concern. I mean it's not just uh, peculiar and endemic to Asian American communities, but just you know I mean I I I for one usually discourage prospective PhD students yeah. from applying. I said, you know, uh, fine, if you cannot do anything else, right? I mean, this is a kind of advice that pastors used to give to these uh, prospective seminarians, you know, like, please don't do, don't do this unless you cannot think of anything else that you would rather do with your life. I would say the same thing. I think the kind of long gone are days of the sort of a quote unquote gentleman scholar in mm-hmm. Cambridge, England, you know, roaming the halls at the university library, looking at these antiquated books and writing a few things. Was, those days are long gone. I mean, you know, I was so I think, you know, just a kind of much more concentrated and strategic counsel that you want to have before you end up applying to schools. Like, who are some of the scholars? Yeah. What can I do? I usually tell students, you know what? With your PhD, you want to get three things, right? One, a degree, two, a job, three, a book, right? I mean, if you get that trifecta out of your PhD experience, you've done really, really well. Of those and of the PhD students, I've had a privilege and pleasure of training. Uh, Two out of five uh, have that. And and no, three, uh, two out of five. Um, And that's really great uh but it's not that the other three are slackers no they're trying there but you know once you start hit the ground running teaching at either secondary schools or so that's the other thing right you know it used to be back in the day whatever that day was which i've never seen or known you know there will be time there were times i suppose where you could get a job if you came from a very top school it wasn't that hard i mean but now it's like it's
0: not no, I'm it's
1: incredibly hard, hard. and yeah. and so you're gonna have to think about how will I. I don't know. Just I mean, I I I tell students even with their dissertation proposals. I said, yeah. you know what? Will this get you a job? Like when you're applying for a theological school or religious studies department, or in, in in my case, since I do history, some cases you can do history. I mean, I have a uh, just last uh, PhD student who just finished during COVID. He's got a postdoc in the history department um you know at a history department that's great but like whatever you're like will this actually get you to be a very competitive applicant so i think i want to i Hmm. I
0: want to reserve maybe for a follow-up podcast conversation with you the the job market because the job market is a specific um entry point into a broader discussion about the future of theological education which you of course yes so i want to i want to like circle back because i feel like that that could be a a major conversation with respect to demographic trends of of migration of asian people especially of the dying of the kind of institutional church the role of religion in our society so i i want to jump into that maybe for a future one i want to circle back to various threads you've given um, our audience, and I want to kind of put a sharper point to it. You've Mm. mentioned you're trained as a historian, Mm. you read Western church history. Mm. Uh, You, however, as a Korean immigrant, grew Mm. up in the Korean Korean American church. You understand that experience and I'm sure you're historicizing it as well, linking it hmm. to immigration and racialization. So you're you occupy this sort of—I don't want to put words in your mouth—but perhaps in an, an ambivalent space where your profession, but your kind of existential experience. Um, I, I wonder how you navigate that. Uh, when I was at APARI, uh, the Asian Pacific American Religion Research Initiative, this past July. I was so gratified for that space because I could talk with other administrators who are navigating kind of Asian American studies within the broader school curriculum, uh, navigating their identity as an institutional leader in predominantly white spaces, how to advocate for Asian Americans, but not only Asian Americans. Um, And then perhaps another sort of, tension is this whole evangelical mainline thing. Because I know you, you've you grown up in evangelical spaces, your work is in mainline spaces. So this is another sort of field of navigation. So I, I guess the question here is, how, how do you navigate these various fields, institutionally, professionally, existentially? Because my sense is, uh, H- Asian Americans, have, have perhaps unique burdens in these areas because we're not white, we're not black. We don't map onto the evangelical mainline binary cleanly. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, um, thank you, David. I would say that um, I try to live by my own counsel, these three letters, U-B-U. <laughs> I'm not prescribing my journey to anyone else. Yep. I'm just saying that this is me. Yeah. so early on um, early on in my theological journey as a teacher um, and I wrote about it um, in a book that was published um, you know by a small press I was talking about this experience that I had of reading Jun Yang Lee's Marty you know Marty. experience who taught at Drew's, uh, Drew University School of Theology whose theology is far more progressive than I am but now I think I'm kind of kind of right there. I mean I, I kind of know I I intuitively get why he did what he did and all that. You know, reading his account of after he was finishing up or finished up with his PhD, uh he wanted to serve God in ministry at a UMC church in Cleveland uh in you know, Ohio mm-hmm. and he was told that, you know, dude like you you should be our janitor and that just like made me cry. Mm-hmm. And you know, there is a sort of a deeper connection that was established right there that I knew, I, I didn't know really what to do with. I mean, mm. I don't, I you know, I, I say I'm too conservative for my liberal colleagues and I'm way too liberal for my conservative friends. Mm. And that I get to live out every day of my life, every day, <laughs> because I go to a, an evangelical church where, where I am way too liberal for, for some people. Mm. And I teach at a secular university-based divinity school. Where I am, I think, respected for being a good teacher and a good citizen and a and a, and a very good scholar, but I think you know, everyone knows that theologically I'm more orthodox. Mm. So in some ways I have ceased looking for kind of life nurturing community there. I mean, I I, I think I'm I'm good colleagues and friends with you know a number of them, but. I Don't really expect to find people who get me, like Sung Chan Ra. I mean, mm-hmm. Sung Chan is a progressive evangelical, you know what I mean? Like soldier and a type, he guess, you know, he speaks in multiple spaces. You see what I mean? And mm-hmm. and I also realized, you know what, maybe that is my I went to biblical seminary for my master divinity degree. And by the end of by the end of it, I realized maybe I'm a little bit too scholastically interested, or maybe social justice oriented, or whatnot. And I go to Princeton Seminary. And I was, you know, harassing for being super conservative. Why did you come from biblical? And these are, I mean, this is history, so you you shouldn't filter these things. By the way, I mean, like this is this is what what makes our shit really exciting, you know? Yeah. And because, like This stuff because when you look at people's like diaries and manuscripts, this is the kind of stuff that they they write about. You know, this is like, why I
0: love podcasts. Is
1: yeah, this, absolutely. This yeah, kind just,
0: of informal personal interaction yes, is where truth it's a sense really. It's a morality.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> and. So and then um, because, you know, who's going to dig up that particular moment, like 47 minute, 24 seconds, limb drop the S-bomb, you know, like, well, who cares, right? <laughs> well, you know, just to just to trace
0: some of the narrative. So, yep. you you're Yale undergrad. Yeah, you went to biblical seminary, yep. which well, is div. right. And for people who don't know, biblical was founded because they people there found Westminster Seminary, not conservative enough. So they created a more biblical seminary called Biblical. Right. Then you went from Biblical to the arch enemy of Westminster, which is Princeton (laughs) Seminary, right? Right. 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 And then you end up teaching at a kind of a a divinity school at a secular research university, right? So your own professional narrative is this sort of odd conglomeration of institutions, which they all make they. In some To some degree, they all make sense, given that yeah. you don't fit
1: these prefabricated yeah. categories, right? Yes. And there are people like that. You know, there, there are some scholars I know who are, you know, African-Americans or, you know, Africana uh, and also white Americans whose narratives are complicated. You know, I used to think that I'm so unique and I realized, no, there are plenty of people like me who's... Grown up, Pentecostal or fundamentalist, disavow some of that. Yeah. I guess for me, I have disavowed some of evangelical stuff, but not not by and large. I mean, mm. to me, I was preaching at our church, a uh, chapel at VDS, Vanderbilt Divinity School chapel yesterday, and I was talking about you know how it's the five words to live by. To me, are you know in Mark uh, nine twenty five, you know I believe, help my unbelief. It's the father of the spirit possessed, you know, son who tells Jesus, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, there is a certain sense of Christocentrism, the the vibrancy of Christocentrism in one's journey that I think is at the core of evangelicalism. I mean, I think I'm not talking about the Trumpian political January 6th, all of that, you know, terrifyingly abominable nonsense. But, you know, I'm talking about at the core encountering the living God through Christ and loving God and loving neighbor, whatever your religion may be, mm. and leaving some of those eschatological concerns and commitments entirely up to God. And while I'm here, I'm going to try to embody the gospel. I mean, yeah. that's who I am at my core. So, you know, I learned that at biblical, I learned that at Princeton seminary, I learned that at Cambridge university during my PhD. I learned that at a Gordon-Conwell seminary for the five, five, first five years of my professoriate, and then the last 16 years at Vanderbilt. Mm. And I realized when I look back, there has not been a home, you know, like home, like a perfect home. Yeah. But then they all all been homes, so you know what I mean. And I, I think there is so you know, um, and so I do take some genuine comfort in reading, you know, one of the most uh, sub subcon- I mean subversively eschatological texts in the New Testament, Hebrews, you know, the letter mm-hmm. letter to the Hebrews, you know, and and we're not looking we're looking for a city that is yet to come, mm-hmm. and I do think that you know maybe. Because, you know, I mean, Sung Chan and I were talking about this last night. You know, I was talking to him about double consciousness of the Duboisian sort. And he said, Paul, there is this, and he's written about it, apparently about the the triple consciousness Hmm. for, you know, children of immigrants. You don't really identify with the majority culture, namely this kind of white, superstructures Mm -hmm. uh, here in America, Mm -hmm. nor do you really identify with the first generation culture of your immigrant families. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I mean, I I came here at age 15, I'm 55, 40 years into this kind of westernization process, as well as preservation of certain cultural mores of South Korea. I don't know that I fit comfortably in a first generation Korean speaking church. Mm -hmm. I do not actually nor do I exactly fit in in a a white evangelical church either. I'm serving there as a scholar in residence. I love it. But there there are levels of dissonance and resonance. I mean, that's there everywhere. You see what I mean? Like I'm going to Korea at the end of October. I'm really excited to kind of, you know, um, talk to some of the um, Korean American leaders and Korean leaders. Hmm. But I would also feel like, yeah, this is the country of my birth and my family's there. My parents are there. But I still feel like you know, my sister said something really funny. She said to me, you know, when you're in a taxi ride, do not talk much because your accent will give it away that you're not really from there. They may really take you for a ride. Now, this is about <laughs> 20 years ago, but, but you see what I mean. I think yeah. it's, uh, so I've really, I've looked for my home and I couldn't find it. Yeah. I mean- I, I do find it in my house, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. in my relationship with my, my wife and our son. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think when we look for, and this sounds kind of hokey, but it doesn't, it, it's not, and nor it shouldn't sound pietistic, but if I, I should not be looking for a complete closure and communion here. here
0: yeah.
1: All earthly communions do open up the vista into something bigger and beyond. It's almost yeah. like the sacramental presence of the, the the friends that I have here, they open up the vista and possibility of something bigger and and beyond yeah. that is only going to be fulfilled and fulfillable in the three persons of God, yeah, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Interesting, interesting. I um, that's evocative of
0: of um, my church. I attend a, a predominantly Asian American church. I found a good one. Um, okay, which one our, is that? May I ask? It's Graceway Presbyterian Church. Uh, Pastor David Choi. He's a PTS oh, yeah. mom. Oh yeah! Uh, oh yeah! Oh, he's a great USA. guy. Yeah, mostly yes. second gen Asian. American I love girls. David. Yes, yes. So, so spoken and, there. Yes. Yeah, he's still there, and our son got confirmed this past Sunday. So it was a hmm. really happy occasion. Um, wow. He's actually baptized because. Um, I wanted him to make a choice for himself, so he, we yeah, we, did yeah, yeah. Not, we didn't baptize him as an infant, against my past Presbyterian pastors. Um, but I go to church because I do feel a sense of belonging at at my church, and this yes. is this is kind of my thoughts about the Asian American church more broadly. And I know as a historian, you're interested in uh, in. Perhaps developing a future project related to the history of the Asian American Church. And you and I have talked very briefly about Young Knock Presbyterian Church in LA that you've done some research in. And this past June, I brought together some folks to jumpstart a more formal conversation in building Mm. a a subfield called Asian American Church History. Oh, that's beautiful. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I'd love to hear just your ruminations on. Um, the the place of developing an Asian American church history discussion, the kind yeah. of research um, you've done already, but also prospectively. Yes. Where do you see in the next 10, 20 years, the Asian American church going given that immigration trends from Asia to the U S are kind of flatlining. And so yeah. that natural growth we found in first gen churches is, not really dependable, at least currently, Um, assimilation. People like my son uh, doesn't speak Korean or Chinese or have strong memories of any sort with the homeland. What does it mean for their faith as an Asian American Christian moving forward, right? So these are some of the prospective issues yeah, but I'm yeah. also interested. I know you're a historian, so I also want to lean yes. into your strengths as a historian, perhaps of Asian American churches.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I I think you know it would be really a lot of fun to have people like Helen Kim or Tim yep. Seng. That I know you had invited. Yep, yep. Have a and sort Jane of a Hong Zoom well. call. Yep. Yeah, who? Jane Hong yeah. as well. Oh, Jane, Oh, yeah, Jane Hong is fantastic, yeah. and and also uh, William William Yu
0: at Columbia. William Yu,
1: well. William Yu, yeah, at, at Columbia Seminary. These are really thoughtful, um, great scholars from whom I, 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 I've I learned a lot. Um, I, you know, um, so I, I think how to, how to jumpstart a particular discourse. So um, ethnography has not been a big part of his, history writing because history writing has always seen itself as talking about people who are no longer with us, yeah. that they're kind of, uh, you know, artifacts that they bequeath, such as, you know, manuscripts or books, or, you know, actual objects of devotion or piety, They would help form the... So, you know, I I I got going on uh, the Young Knock Church Project, partly because I needed an excuse to go to a place where there are people who look like me more. And also I I realized that there, there wasn't as much done um, I thought, uh, well, I mean, ro- wrongly or rightly, I'm not sure, but you know, it's a kind of congregational study or localized kind of um, study. Like, uh, okay, like I-, I didn't know who else did what. What I was interested in doing, yeah, and and I just kind of, I mean, I was gonna, you know, there is a very very well known, well, I th- I, th- I think in my book, uh, well known, um, undervalued sociologist, Pyongat uh, Min at CUNY. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he's done a lot of good, great sociological work on Korean, you know, uh, Protestant communities or Catholic communities in the New York area. Again, I'm not trained. So at, at earlier in my in my journey as a as a scholar, I wanted I had applied and didn't get it, but it was a Mellon, um, Mellon New Direction Fellowship, so that'll uh, train uh, you know uh, people who are just just at the cusp of getting tenure. To pivot to something some new field and you can mm. kind of become more of a you know a double threat rather than you know a triple threat I guess whatever you know but but um I I always thought that that would be a good good way to kind of get at this whole um studying these congregational cultures or re- like for example you know I am trained as an early modern English historian that means uh, 17th century England I'm amazed at the kind of literal troves of literary stuff like you know, commonplace notebooks or diaries that these people maybe so narcissistic left behind or like the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody will read it and study about it. In Korean churches, um, I mean, cause I am to be more particular, I'm interested in Korean American presbytery. I'm not as interested in Korean Christianity because there's a lot being done on it, um, but Korean American religiosity or Christianity, not so much. And so I'm, I mean, You know, I really should have gone to that thing that you convened, actually, but I was really kind of knee deep with, up to my eyeball with my own writing, these occidental projects. You know, so I couldn't go. I mean, not occidental college where Jane Hong is, but occidental as in like just Western stuff. So, um, but you know. If, if you ask me like why did I become interested in in young knockck, Young is a very prominent church, it actually gets you if you study Young Knock Presbyterian Church LA, it gets you back to young Seoul. soul. So it there's already a sort of a a trans uh, pacific transnational elements that you know people like uh, Dr. Helen Kim has done a marvelous job on um, but also I was interested in studying the sort of, you know, the issues of what happened with people at Young Nog when LA riots happened, what Mm -hmm. happened with issues of generational kind of, you know, baton change, Mm -hmm. what happens to the sort of a a gentrification in the city of LA. And so to get at all of these big topics, you cannot, I mean, I don't think it's manageable to do like multi-congregational studies. So I thought like, why don't I just do a study on this church? I spent about 10 days a couple of years ago Uh, interviewing people. But what, what I came up against right away was that they had a, um, well, I mean, they had a leadership conflict, right? Leadership change. So one pastor was uh, um, unceremoniously kind of forced out. And so it created a real mess. So it was a kind of a shadow congregation that was set up and adversarially and then I realized, oh man, like, and then I was getting calls from that other church saying, let me tell you the real narrative. And, and you know what, as a historian, that makes for a hugely interesting historiographical project because there is a reality. I mean, it's like, you know, how to interpret January 6th or how to interpret, you know, uh, um, whatever, whatever, like the the founding of this nation or just telling the story of Asian American Christianity, who gets to tell it, you know, winners or losers or people in between will shape the narrative tremendously. So, um so I was, I mean, but I, I guess for me, personally speaking, I need to finish this book on early modern, I mean, early Enlightenment Christology in England. And then after I put that baby to rest, then I'm going to really jump onto um, this discourse. And I, I, I think it's, it's somewhat um, foolhardy because talking about Korean American Protestantism, may not get a lot, I think it'll get less publishers interested in my work that, you know what I mean? Like talking about Enlightenment England, but at the same time, you know, I'll be about 57, 58. And and I don't want to, you know, again, trying to live by the three letters, UBU. I mean, I got to do what really gets me interested. Right. Yeah, so go ahead, David.
0: I I think that we need more histories of Asian American churches if we want to understand we are today right Mm -hmm. so absent a history of where we've come it's hard to figure out who we are today and where we're beginning to head and as a theologian as an asian american theologian i can't do asian american theology without some understanding of the faith and practice of these asian american christian communities that have already been in existence right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah this is a huge plug for you to pick up that project after you finish the current one. I want to circle back to you said you were you're trained as a historian of early modern English mm-hmm. uh, history, religious yes. history. Yep. And in your field, people leave all sorts of archival material from yes. journals to yes. you know in, in reformation studies. There's a big thing about the consistory in, in, in Geneva, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, Geneva sure. yes. and going through the the, the, yes. the, the, the documents meticulously to recreate exactly what's going on back in that period and I thought you were going to analogize and say do you find that sort of documentary archival uh sources are they are they in existence for building an Asian American church history or are they not is that why you thought turning to ethnography could supplement the deficiencies of the lack of archival materials this is getting a little nerdy but we have nerds oh, on, the, on the podcast. Oh, so no, absolutely. Tell me more yeah. about the, me- sure the methodological up. challenges
1: you face. Yeah, thank you. That's a brilliant question. And that gets right at the heart of the sort of, a, you know, kind of temporary stoppage. Like, oh, okay, maybe, because I don't know. I mean, I, I, I shouldn't speak so, 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 you know, uh, presumptuously, but um, the kind of Genevan consistorial record. May exist. Uh, I, I need to do a better. Again, so I need to, I mean, I know that Young Nug is not, it's KPCA, right? I think it's a, it's not PCUSA. It's not PCA. It is a sort of a Korean, so the Korean word would be Tonghap. I think it is in that line. Hapdong is more conservative, like Westminster. Tonghap would be more like Princeton Seminary type, but it's not part of the PCUSA. It wasn't. But so the, what I need to do is then go to um, their historical society. There may or may not be a historical society. So I think earlier point that you made, David, about the dwindling number of, you know, uh, transoceanic migration from Korea or China, that means that there will be, I don't know where, whether there will be less I do think that they'll continue to be language-specific, you know, mm-hmm. Mandarin, Cantonese,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: uh, Korean um, and other Asian, uh, variety of Asian language worship services.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I do think that, um, you know, I I'm just as a side note, I tell people, especially nowadays, when we do most of our writing via email. So I said, you know, if you're if you want past, if you want future generations to study your thought and your activities, make sure you download your emails, print them out, leave it somewhere. I yeah. mean, like seriously, like if if you want, if you don't have such ambitions or laudable desires or whatever, then just forget it. I mean, because unless I'm able to access, this is it, right? I mean, like so, there are lots of these older you know, um septo and octogenarian Korean Americans at you know Young Knock Church that unless I actually talk to them individually, and which I mean it'll let's say um one day I talked to about three no five people and yeah. I was exhausted right yeah. Yeah. so then I mean how many people can I talk to? so I would have to basically do it during my sabbatical where I just live there and talk to and, and I think it's a very worthy project. Actually it is sort of a, a a uh, 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 anthropology of Christianity Connell kind of project that is ethnographically based well, and on this yeah, point
0: I yeah. just applied for a Louisville Institute research grant on hmm. first first generation East Asian American Christians. The oral history project um, oh, wow. highlights native language interviews. Yes. And I had oh, LA wow. on my mind. So I might circle back to you and see. If oh, let's could, do it, brother.
1: Yeah, no, we, absolutely. We could. I, yeah, I'm able to conduct interviews in Korean. So I'm bilingual. So it's bicultural. So but I, I, I felt that. So again, as a historian, I know people's biases will come out. I mean, that's part of the beautiful thing about this whole talking to people, because, you know, I mean, we have enemies, we have friends, we have, I mean, like, consistorial records. Yeah, that's what they're all about. I mean, you think they're talking about some highfalutin Presbyterian theology? Yeah, applied. Yeah, applied. But they're talking about why you're naming your dogs like, why you keep naming your kids like, you know, Dennis or like there are these kind of prohibited names by the Geneva authorities because you cannot name your kids in the Catholic way anymore. And then, and then you know, people weren't saying they're you know, you know, like. Lord's Paternoster, so are, you know, the Lord's Prayer, and and they weren't coming to church. So then the the punishment was, you know, go home and and say the Lord's Prayer five times, or something like very, very much more quotidian rather than super disciplinarian, right? So so when you learn about the everyday reality of, you know, 16th century Geneva, you learn more. And so to me, as a Korean-American, what is tragic to me is that these are. This is the Presbyterian Church in LA right now. I may be able to find more about life the, of Presbyterian pre- reform context in 500 years ago in Switzerland. And so I, so you know what, if you don't have, if you don't, and let me just be very blunt. If you don't, ha- if you don't have people talking about your shit like your stuff, yeah, it disappears. Yeah, it disappears. And so yeah. I was really grateful for the. Uh, jeremy lynn the movie that came out like you know a few months ago i was really excited i mean i haven't gotten around to seeing it but you know there's a there's a real important kind of aspect to chronicling our human endeavors and our Mm -hmm. efforts so that for the sake of posterity not not to be uber narcissistic but that's what history is right history Mm -hmm. is bequeathing for posterity or for oneself the record of one's life journey and i do think that um you know, David, uh, maybe providentially, this podcast has kind of is convincing me to like, OK, let's go do this for real, because I got to put my, you know, what the, put the, uh, what the put your money where the mouth is or, you know, practice what you preach. Because and to be frank, I mean, I, I felt like people like William Yu and Jane Hong and other, you know, uh, Tim sent like they were doing good work. So I was like, ah, maybe I should. And, and another scholar, uh, Rebecca Kim, you yeah. know, Rebecca Kim, you yeah. know at Pepperdine and yeah. she's also in sociology and, and Sharon
0: Kim as well Rebecca and Sharon do do some work together
1: on yeah teaching. yeah I and is, yeah so very valuable I just, I just felt like as a deeply insecure Korean American guy I didn't want to try like so I, I always wanted to like travel uh, in a territory where no one's done work so yeah. like what I'm working on it's kind of been worked on but I feel really confident like when I think about embarking on this project on Yongnak Church I feel utterly and absolutely like vulnerable naked exposed like an imposter and you know if you're approaching 60 years old you don't want to feel like an imposter you don't want to start something new but, but i also feel like maybe maybe there is a way and and so i'm hoping and praying about how um how the next phase of my academic journey which by the way by academic you know doesn't mean that it's only about scholarly pursuit it's also about life of faith i mean if you're studying a life of a church how can you not be interested in or at least like notionally interested in the life of piety and 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 so i think you know that's that would be i I think you know um if i'm granted more sufficient years to embark on a new research project um i think that would be something that yeah, you know, and, and then I thought, and, and I'm so glad to hear that you got, you applied for Louisville uh, uh, Institute grant because mm-hmm. I just didn't know. I mean, I I thought about applying for some funding through the Korea Foundation, but then yeah. the Korea Foundation may look a askance at, at projects that are Christianity-based because, yeah, I hear you know, that. they may care more about Buddhism or Hindu, like whatever. And I was mm-hmm. like, so I never really got off the ground, if you know what I mean. Like, I was mm-hmm. like, because I have all these other projects that would keep me ground, uh, grounded in the sort of, a you know, um, western church history of 17th and 18th century you know europe so i just but then it's not that i don't care about that at all no i do care about that but then this other this other part this young knock thing and i think i will really just do it on young knock just like one church mm-hmm. and just write something and uh-huh. then get going i think because i do think that like for example if one were to do a book on like korean american presbyterianism that'll be a huge thing right because yeah. you gotta take into like the Princeton Seminary crowd, Westminster Seminary crowd, Trinity, you know, like all over, you got to cover. So it's going to be a really Herculean effort, but I think starting small with, with a, with a mega church in LA might, might, might be the way to go, go about that.
0: If one of the benefits of this podcast is to Hmm. rekindle your interest in writing this specific ethnographically oral history, kind of historical, interpretation of young knock, then I will have counted this podcast a success. Yes, Paul, I think that that is a fantastic note to conclude our conversation. I I also want to flag for a future conversation. The the role of history in constructing an Asian American identity. I think uh, folks like Jay Caspian Kang in some of his writings in his book, The Loneliest American, he really complicates this notion that we can even have a coherent conversation about Asian Americans as a group because our histories are just so disparate. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's noticeable that as a historian, you were training your sights on Korean American churches, right? So you weren't making the pan ethnic move. You were you were staying within the Korean American lane, so to speak. I want to yes. pick that up for a future. I'm sure I've just provoked your thoughts.
1: But I just want to he thank did, you for... I, was just looking up, I never heard of a guy named Jay Caspian Kang. I, was like, I know, it's a oh, great oh, name.
0: It's a cool name. <laughs> it's a very cool name. And he's a, he's a very provocative voice. He's got a great podcast along with um, some other folks. Um, Tammy, Tammy Kim, uh, Andy Liu, who was previously on. And Andy Liu is a big Jeremy Lin fan. Um, and Jane <laughs> and Andy love talking about sports and Asian Americans as well. But we'll save that for another one. Paul, thank you so much for your time and just sharing your wisdom, your experience, and your faith with me and my audience.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a great privilege and delight. Thanks for inviting me and I'm so glad that we could connect. Awesome.
0: We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.